Well, turn, if you would, please, in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Our sermon text this morning is Mark chapter 3, uh, verses 7 to 35. I'll read that text, and we'll look at it together. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother's? and my brothers, my mother and my brothers. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. May God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. Pineapple on pizza. Country music, anchovies, 
the Dallas Cowboys, Spam, Vegemite, NASCAR, Mullets. Some things are, for one reason or another, polarizing in the way that people respond to them. Some things tend to elicit kind of a neutral, agreed-upon response. Yeah, peanut butter. Yeah, peanut butter is pretty good, most people think. Some things tend to elicit a really strong response either one way or the other, for or against, love it or hate it. With some things, it's very rare that you find someone who has a neutral opinion of them. Well, that's a silly way to illustrate, uh, but I think that phenomenon is related uh, to something that we see in our sermon text from Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 35. Uh, As we'll see in this passage, Jesus himself has become something of a polarizing figure. And with Jesus, far more than with any of the items I've just listed, a neutral opinion is not a valid option not just as a matter of taste, but as a matter of logical possibility. Jesus did things and said things about himself so outrageous and so spectacular that thinking people who encountered him could not remain neutral toward him. So here's what I want us to do with our time uh, this morning. First, I want us to see what Mark shows us about Jesus' ministry in this passage. That'll be sort of our introduction into the passage. What does Mark show us about Jesus' ministry in this passage? And then second, I want us to see the three different responses to Jesus that we find in this passage. So first, what do we see in this passage about Jesus' ministry? Well, what we find in our passage is that in almost every way, the drama of Mark's gospel has escalated. Mark's narrative has picked up speed, so to speak. By this point, Jesus has become tremendously popular. We've seen crowds around Jesus before, but not quite like this. Here in chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, in that first paragraph, we're told that Jesus is now followed by a huge multitude from a geographically diverse area. If you were to plot the regions listed in those verses on a map, you'd find that people are coming from up to a hundred miles away on foot in the first century to be near Jesus. The crowd around Jesus has not only grown in size, it's also grown in intensity. There in verses 9 and 10, we see that Jesus' disciples have to have a boat ready for him so that the crowd doesn't crush him as they're trying to get near him. Down in verse 20, Mark records, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Jesus' popularity has soared higher than ever. And as Jesus' popularity has grown, so has opposition to Jesus. No doubt due in part to the religious leaders' jealousy over Jesus' increasing influence and popularity. We're also going to see later, Lord willing, that Mark has been charting for us this sort of increasing tension between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees throughout chapter 2. And that tension comes to a boiling point here in this passage. 
Back at the beginning of chapter 2, remember the scribes, they start out quietly suspicious of Jesus. When by the time of this passage, the scribes are openly hostile to Jesus. They accuse him of being in league with Satan. So alongside this increasing popularity and this increasing opposition, we also see an increasing clarity in the shape of the people who are following Jesus. Those following Jesus start to take an increasingly clear shape and identity. So in this passage, Jesus appoints 12 apostles uh, there in verses 13 to 19. And toward the end of chapter 3, Jesus tells us uh, those, what distinguishes those who truly belong to him from those who don't. So Jesus is increasingly popular, increasingly opposed, and followed by a group with increasing definition. The drama has escalated. Well, from our passage, it doesn't seem that what Jesus himself is doing has actually changed all that much. Jesus continues to teach. We're told that he continues to heal, and obviously he continues to cast out demons. Uh, Interestingly, that last activity of exorcising or casting out demons gets kind of special attention in this passage. It becomes something of a lightning rod for controversy in this chapter. So Mark notes there in the first paragraph of this section that as Jesus is surrounded by these crowds and crowds of people, he continues to cast out demons. Uh, And in addition to sort of serving and helping the individual people that are demon-possessed, what Jesus is doing is that he's also showing by casting out demons that with his arrival, the kingdom of God is at hand. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verse 20, Luke records what seems to be the same incident, and he says that Jesus said in that instance, if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the the kingdom of God has come upon you. So these exorcisms aren't just good, helpful deeds to serve people. They are a sign of God's coming kingdom. So a few weeks ago, when we looked at Jesus' first exorcism in the synagogue in Capernaum, we noted that the Bible teaches that Satan and his demons are active in the world in a great variety of ways. Satan and his demons tempt, they afflict, they accuse, they blind, they stir up persecution. One especially intense form of satanic activity is that of demon possession, which is when a demon seems to inhabit and sort of control a person's body. The the common theme of all of Satan's activities is that Satan loves to oppose God's kingship. He loves to harm God's image bearers and turn them against God uh, and in disobedience. Well, the Bible indicates that we seem to see a huge spike in instances of demon possession in the face of Jesus' ministry. If you read the Gospels, it seems like one in every hundred people has a demon or something like that. If you read the rest of the Bible, that doesn't seem to be the case. But it seems that in the providence of God, this sort of swell in demon possession might be so that Jesus can show powerfully and publicly what he came to do which is to roll back the kingdom of Satan and to establish God's saving rule in every way, right? Satan tempts. Jesus forgives and transforms. Satan afflicts. 
Jesus heals. Satan accuses. Jesus justifies. Satan blinds. Jesus opens blind eyes. Satan introduces sin and death into the world. Jesus dies on the cross in the place of sinners and rises from the dead to give eternal life to all who will trust in him. So Jesus' exorcisms, sort of the most visible way of opposing Satan, are a sign that he is bringing God's kingdom and overthrowing Satan's. Multiple times in Mark's gospel, Mark points out to us that when these demons, these inhabitants of the spiritual world, see Jesus, they proclaim who he is. There in verse 11, Mark writes, And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. In fact, that's why the demons do what Jesus tells them to do. Because as God's divine son, he is more powerful than they are. So when the scribes see this, they say Jesus is casting out demons by the authority of demons or by the authority of Satan. Jesus responds to the scribes, hey, listen, let me tell you what my ministry has to do with Satan. Let me, let me tell you exactly what it means that I'm casting out all these demons. Verse 24, Jesus says, if a kingdom is divided against itself, it can't stand. Verse 25, if a house is divided against itself, it can't stand. Jesus' point seems to be, if, if I were acting on Satan's behalf, that would be suicidal. That's clearly not what's going on. Verse 27 explains what is going on. Jesus says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus Jesus is there alluding to our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 49, where God is promising, as Andrew introduced, to accomplish for his people a second exodus. Isaiah promises just as God once delivered his people out from under oppression in Egypt to bring them to himself, so again, Isaiah promises, God will bring his people out from under their oppressors to himself. So Isaiah writes, can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? Right? Can, can anyone plunder a strong man's house unless he first binds the strong man? You hear the echoes? Isaiah continues, for thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued for I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. Jesus is saying, here's what it means that I'm casting out demons. It means that in me, God has shown up to deliver his people from the kingdom of Satan. Jesus is saying, now that I'm here, I am binding the strong man Satan and plundering the people who used to belong to him. By the way, Christian, you realize that if you belong to Jesus, the reason that you belong to Jesus is because you got plundered. By God's sovereign mercy, he plundered you straight out of the kingdom of darkness and into the reign of his beloved son, as Paul puts it in Colossians. 
even as these demons are being cast out, they acknowledge, not in faith, but at least in fear, that Jesus is the Son of God, come to bring his kingdom. These demons have the best theology of anyone in the passage. So that's what we see about Jesus' ministry in this passage. It hasn't really changed. Mark does zoom in on the casting out of demons that Jesus does, uh, and there is a heightening of the drama in response to Jesus' ongoing uh, ministry. So what we need to do now is to consider the three responses to Jesus that we find in this passage. The first response that we see is from the scribes. First response that we see in this passage is from the scribes. Mark tells us specifically that these scribes have come down from Jerusalem. So they seem to represent kind of the religious establishment of Jesus' day. I mentioned a moment ago that the scribes attribute the miraculous ministry of Jesus to the power of Satan. You can see that there in verse 22. By the way, what astonishing evidence for the fact that Jesus, in fact, did perform miracles that not even his enemies denied that he did these things. They just said that he did them by the power of Satan. Mark is writing within the lifetimes of those who would have witnessed these things. And he gets away with claiming that Jesus' miraculous ministry was so public and so undeniable that even those who hated Jesus couldn't say that he didn't do miracles, that he didn't cast out demons and heal. They just had to cast aspersion on his authority for doing so. So notice how Jesus responds to the scribes' accusations. First, we've already seen that Jesus tells them they're wrong, right? He's not in league with Satan. He's come to bind Satan and to overthrow him. The second thing that Jesus says is much scarier there in verses 28 and 29. In response to the scribes, Jesus says this. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Mark adds there in verse 34, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. What is Jesus talking about there? What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and why can't it be forgiven? Well, first, it's important to say Jesus' words are certainly not meant to terrify the consciences of, of sensitive believers. So Jesus is not teaching that if you accidentally mess up in this one way, then believing the gospel won't work for you. That's not what Jesus is teaching this is the same Jesus who said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus is not trying to terrify sensitive consciences here. But friends, Jesus absolutely does mean for us to sense the weight of what he's talking about. When Jesus talks about being guilty of an eternal sin, about being beyond God's forgiveness, that is an inconceivably scary thing. The teaching of Jesus is that there is nothing worse than facing a holy God on the day of judgment in the guilt of unforgiven sin. The consequences are eternal. 
Jesus means for us to feel the weight of sin and the prospect of its not being forgiven. And friends, that's why the good news of the gospel that we celebrate every week is such wonderful news. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the most important thing you need to hear. The Bible teaches that all of us are very great sinners against a holy God. Our default setting is to run away from God. Our hearts are full of hostility toward him. We rebel willfully and repeatedly against his authority. We're selfish and hateful toward those made in his image. And because of this, we stand guilty before him. That's something every one of us will reckon with when Jesus returns to judge the world. But the good news of the gospel is that in his love and his mercy, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life of obedience that we should have lived, to die in the place of sinners under the wrath of God for the sins we've committed. Then three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, and now God offers forgiveness of sins and eternal life to anyone who will turn from sin and trust in Jesus. If you have any questions about that, we'd be delighted to speak with you after the service about how you can know that your sins are forgiven through Jesus. That wonderful news of the gospel, I think, helps us understand what Jesus means when he speaks about an eternal sin that cannot be forgiven. In one sense, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is these scribes' verbal act of calling the Holy Spirit's work in Jesus' ministry the work of Satan. But what we see in Mark's account is that what the scribes say here is the culmination of unrepentant unbelief in response to Jesus' Spirit-empowered ministry. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the culmination of unrepentant unbelief in response to Jesus' Spirit-empowered ministry. So over the past five weeks in Mark, Starting in Mark chapter 2, we've seen a, a growing tension between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. So glance over for a moment at Mark chapter 2, the beginning of Mark chapter 2. How does that chapter start? What's the story of the paralyzed man? Remember, Jesus claims to forgive the sins of this paralyzed man. And what do the scribes do? They suspect Jesus in his heart because only God can forgive sins. But then Jesus shows them, no, look, I'm the son of man with authority on earth to forgive sins. Let me show you by miraculously healing this paralyzed man. What should the scribes do after Jesus demonstrates his power in that way? They should fall down and repent and follow Jesus. Do they? No. What's the very next passage? It's when Jesus is dining with tax collectors and sinners. And what do the scribes of the Pharisees do? They question Jesus' disciples. They say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You remember what Jesus says? He says, it's because I'm the sin doctor. I came to call sinners to repentance, to heal them, to give them forgiveness. What should the scribes and Pharisees do? They should say, a sin doctor, that's what I need. Jesus, can you help me? Jesus, can you heal me? Jesus, let me follow you. Is that what they do? No, what's the next passage? Well, Jesus and his disciples are not fasting. 
And what do the Pharisees do? They question Jesus. Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting? Again, Jesus draws attention to who he is. He says, because the bridegroom is here. I am the messianic bridegroom of God's people. What should the scribes and Pharisees do? They should jump in and join the wedding party. The bridegroom is here. Let's embrace him. Let's worship him. Is that what they do? No. What's the next story? Jesus and his disciples are snacking on the Sabbath. What do the Pharisees do? They accuse Jesus. It's not a question so much as an accusation. Look, why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus says, look, I'm the son of man. I have authority to interpret the Sabbath command. What should the scribes and Pharisees do? Fall down and worship the son of man. Submit to the Lord of the Sabbath. Is that what they do? No. What's the next passage? Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And what are the Pharisees doing? They're watching Jesus to see whether he'll heal on the Sabbath in order to start a fruitful dialogue with him about the interpretation of the Torah. No, they're watching him in order to accuse him. They have made up their minds about him. And the passage says that Jesus looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. Who does that remind you of? Someone else from the Old Testament who was confronted again and again and again with the power and mercy of God and refused to submit, refused to trust in him. When the scribes decide that Jesus is in league with Satan, it's not an accidental slip up. It's the fruit of unrepentant unbelief in response to Jesus' spirit-empowered ministry. One commentator put it like this. This is why this is the unforgivable sin. Jesus is the only sin doctor who can help you. So if you resist Jesus so much that you convince yourself that he's evil, then you've cut yourself off from the only thing that can help you. So what does this have to do with us today? Well, friends, listen. When we open up God's word, we are confronted by the same Jesus we read about in this passage. When we come to the Bible, the same Holy Spirit at work in the ministry of Jesus is at work to reveal who Jesus is, just like he was 2,000 years ago. When we come to God's word, our hearts are faced with the same decision as these scribes. What will we do with Jesus? What will we do when he threatens our comfort and security? What will we do when his teachings offend us? What will we do when he tells us that we are sick sinners who need mercy and healing? We tend to think that how we respond to Jesus depends on our conscious reasoning. And there's certainly some truth to that. Conscious reasoning, thinking well about things, is very important. Believing in Jesus is certainly the most reasonable thing anyone could do. But the reality is that we're all a lot less logical, a lot less rational than we like to think. What we see in this passage is that often our conscious reasoning 
is driven by how we've already decided to respond to Jesus. The scribes here, they were not dummies. They were the smartest people in that society, some of them. But they make a really bad argument here. They draw some ridiculous conclusions in the face of undeniable evidence because they do not want King Jesus to reign over them. The Christian philosopher Pascal once said that the heart has its reasons, which reason does not know. Someone else once said that the mind justifies what the heart desires. John's gospel puts it this way, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The first response, the scary response that we see in this passage to the Lord Jesus is that of the scribes, the response of willful blindness that ends up calling Jesus evil. Second response that we see in this passage to Jesus is that of his own biological family. There in verse 31, Jesus' family members are named specifically as his mother and his brothers. Uh, The early church believed that Jesus' brothers were the biological children of Joseph and Mary, uh, after, born after Jesus. So the, the church father, Hegesippus the Nazarene, who lived from AD 110 to 180, believed that these are the biological children of Joseph and Mary, born after Jesus. Tertullian, who lived from 155 to 220 AD, believes these are the half-brothers of Jesus, born to Joseph and Mary. That's certainly the most straightforward understanding of the text. It's very interesting how Mark structures his material on Jesus' mother and brothers here. Jesus' family, it seems, first get introduced in verses 20 and 21. Verses 20 and 21 say, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And then look what the next verse says. And the scribes. Right? For we have this sudden break after verse 21, and for the next nine verses, from 22 to 30, Jesus' family are nowhere to be found. It's all about Jesus and the scribes. But then down in verse 31, look, suddenly, oh, Jesus' family popped back up again, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. So Mark loves to do this in his narrative. Some Bible scholars even call this Mark's sandwich technique, which is kind of hokey, but It gets the point across. So Mark loves to introduce one story and then sort of insert another story in the middle and then conclude the first story. And when Mark does that, it seems to be his intent to establish some kind of connection in our minds between the two stories, uh, to invite us to think about how the story that kind of bookends and how the story in the middle are related or similar So the scribes, on the one hand, in the middle, they call Jesus evil. They ascribe his ministry to Satan. But Jesus' family, on the other hand, they're not quite as bold, right? They they do think Jesus has gone too far. He really has gotten carried away with this whole public ministry thing. He's made too much of what he's doing. Their view is that Jesus is not quite thinking straight, right? He's out of his mind. He's, He's gotten a bit too extreme, Jesus has. But it seems that Jesus' family hasn't given up on him altogether because they go out to get him, right? That seems to be a desire to rescue Jesus from sort of 
from some sort of familial concern, even if they don't really believe in what he's doing. And the Gospel of John does tell us that prior to his resurrection, and not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. I think Mark's point in sort of splicing these two stories about Jesus' family and the scribes together is to show that ultimately, whether you reject Jesus boldly and aggressively, like the scribes, or sort of more gently and dismissively, you're still rejecting Jesus. Rejecting Jesus boldly and aggressively gets you to the same place ultimately as rejecting Jesus gently and dismissively. Both are ways of rejecting Jesus. Listen, there are plenty of people in our world today who seem to want to save Jesus from his own extremeness, if you will. Right? They're happy to hear about Jesus as a remarkable person, a moral teacher, or maybe even as one of the ways to God. But Jesus' radical teachings about his eternal divinity, about his mission to save sinners who trust in him from the wrath of God against sin, that's a little too far. Maybe people are very happy being vaguely pro-Jesus if they feel that they can just dial back some of his more uncomfortable claims. But Mark is showing us here, that's just another way of rejecting Jesus. Whether you say he has an unclean spirit, like the scribes in verse 30, or he is out of his mind, like Jesus' family in verse 21, neither of those is repentance and faith in Jesus as king and savior. But wait, I'm literally Jesus' brother, right? I am Mary, the mother of Jesus. Surely I'm cool with Jesus just because of my status. None of us would be tempted to say those exact things, but maybe something like, surely because my parents are such godly people or so prominent in the church, or because I've been going to church for so long, or because I'm in ministry, or because I know the answers in youth group or in Sunday school, surely that means that Jesus and I are okay, right? Mark is trying to show us there is no status that substitutes for following Jesus. There is no status that substitutes for following Jesus. Brothers and sisters, as the Lord gives us opportunities to share the gospel with our friends and neighbors, this is something we want to make clear. We want to be as gentle and as gracious and as humble as possible, of course. Uh, but as we're able, we want to make it very plain that Jesus doesn't just want people to be okay with him. Jesus doesn't want people to cultivate sort of a, a vaguely positive opinion of him and say nice things about him on Sundays. Jesus is not looking for fans Jesus is looking for followers, for those who embrace him as king and savior. Mark is showing us not to follow Jesus, either this way or that way, is to reject Jesus because Jesus is claiming to be God. And that leads us to the third response to Jesus we see in this passage, and that is the response of his disciples Again, we see this in two different segments of the text. First, it's there in verses 13 to 18, where Jesus appoints 12 apostles. 
It is no accident that in the same chapter in which Jesus is decisively rejected by the leadership of the 12 tribes of Israel, that Jesus appoints his own group of 12 future leaders. Right? The shape of God's covenant people is beginning to change from the 12 tribes of Israel to the church of the 12 apostles, although there's much continuity there. If we want to use Paul's image from Romans chapter 11, unbelieving branches are beginning to be broken off from God's covenant olive tree. Very soon, believing Gentiles will be grafted into that same tree. In one sense, Jesus is calling these 12 apostles to a very unique office in redemptive history. There are no more apostles alive today, although every true church is built on the teachings of the apostles. We do see something in the calling of the apostles, though, that's common to the life of every Christian. Now look with me at verses 13 to 15. Those verses say, and he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Jesus doesn't send out the apostles until Mark chapter 6, but what we see now is that Jesus is preparing them, it seems, by calling them to be with him, to order their lives around him, to listen to his words. That's exactly the point that Mark is eager to communicate down at the conclusion of our passage in verses 31 to 35, when Jesus' family finally arrive where he is. Four times in these verses, from verses 31 to 35, Mark refers to the location of two different groups, Notice what Mark is communicating. Verse 31, where are Jesus' family? Verse 31, where are they? They are outside. Verse 32, in contrast, there are others where? Sitting around him, listening to his teaching. Verse 32, Jesus is told by the crowd, your mother and your brothers are where? Outside. Verse 33, Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Verse 34, look, it says, and looking about at who? Those who sat around him. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. Verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and sister and brother. Friends, here is the response that Mark is commending in this passage. I'm with Jesus. I want to be with him. I want to follow him. I want to organize my life around him. I want to listen to his teachings, to hear from Jesus the will of God and to do it. The scribes would have told you that they were doing the will of God in all their religious seriousness. A Jesus family probably would have told you that they were doing the will of God, going to help out their sort of crazy relative. Jesus says, doing the will of God is all about me. Doing the will of God is being with Jesus, listening to his teachings, following him in the way he calls us to walk, enjoying fellowship with me, Jesus says. Where are the people of God? Are they all in a particular family? Are they all in one nation? Are they all in one culture? Are they all gathered around the same hobbies or the same politics? 
No, where are the people of God? They're sitting around Jesus, listening to his teachings. Already, this group of Jesus' followers is astonishingly diverse. In this list of 12 disciples, we have Matthew, a.k.a. Levi, the former tax collector, and Simon the Zealot. You know what a zealot was? It was a member of a political group that was so opposed to Roman rule that some of them were known for killing tax collectors. But that was an interesting sort of fellowship dynamic. But what binds this very diverse group together? Allegiance to Jesus, the living center of the people of God. Friends, can you see how this applies to us? One commentator said this. I thought this was helpful. He says, how easy it is to slide back again into a sense of belonging, of group identity that comes from something other than loyalty to Jesus. We substitute long-standing friendship, membership in the same group, tribe, family, club, party, social class, or whatever it may be. But the call to be around Jesus, to listen to him, even if those outside think us crazy, is what matters. The church in every generation and in every place needs to remember this and to act on it. Friends, it's, it's very good that you would develop relationships in the church that include other commonalities that you share with other people. People in the same life stage, people who enjoy the same things, that's fine. But brothers and sisters, do you develop relationships in the church with those with whom you share nothing but Jesus? Because you have more in common with them than the person most like you in the world. Jesus has called our church to be the people organized around himself, pursuing fellowship in obedience to him, in our shared life as his people. That is the foundation of our relationships as a church. May the Lord help us to act on it. As we'll see in the next chapter, Lord willing, those who are with Jesus, they're the ones who come to understand rightly the nature of God's kingdom they come to recognize that Jesus is, even as his demon enemies know him to be, the Son of God. Friends, listen, if Jesus is not the Son of God, don't follow him. Don't follow him. Jesus is going to ask his followers to deny themselves, take up their cross daily. He's going to ask them to lose their lives for his sake He's going to ask them to love him more than their father and mother. He's going to ask them to be willing to sell all they possess to follow him, if that's what it takes. If Jesus is not the son of God, what kind of crazy or evil person must he have been to ask those things? The three times in this passage, we get a verdict on who Jesus is. Verse 21, he is out of his mind. Verse 30, he has an unclean spirit. Verse 11, first spoken by the demons, later owned as glorious truth by those who followed him. You are the son of God. Friend, those are our options. There is no middle ground. As is so often the case, C.S. Lewis put it best. In his book, Mere Christianity, Lewis writes this. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. Would you forgive us, Lord, for our small functional views of Jesus, for how we've wanted to dial back the things about him and his ministry that make us uncomfortable? Lord, for the ways that we have failed to worship him as the supreme son of God, supreme in the world, supreme in our lives. Lord, would you teach us to be those who are committed to being around Jesus, those who long to listen to his teachings, those who need, know that they need his mercy, those who want to walk in fellowship with him. Lord, we pray that Jesus would be the blazing center of our life together as a church. We ask these things for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.